The Psychedologist. Catherine McLean, PhD, is a writer, research scientist, mother, and adventure seeker. She has spent the past two decades studying the effects of mindfulness meditation and psychedelics, surviving motherhood, and learning a lot about death and grief. Her debut book covering all of this terrain, Midnight Water, a psychedelic memoir, is available in print now and audio formats coming soon. This episode, a deep, thoughtful, and bright conversation with Dr. Catherine McLean, my friend and colleague. Love is the starting point for this episode. Catherine shares wisdom from her experiences with life, death, psychedelics, and forgiveness. We talk about how lower doses of medicine can also be healing. Catherine shares about the psychedelic experience of publishing a personal memoir, Midnight Water, and the process that led her to choosing to write the truth. The conversation flows through more themes. Being reborn, working with, recognizing, owning, and releasing burdens. At a certain point, Catherine stopped trying to exile or destroy the parts of her consciousness that were tormenting her and befriending them after recognizing that there might be another way. She shares about how a story can be like water and about the magic of mist. We discuss the medicines as having character, personality, intention. Hooray for the psychedelic breadcrumbs. Catherine speaks to the miracle of letting go of one way of trying to heal yourself, which often pits you against the problem. We explore the idea of monsters as invisible, ever-present aspects of our own minds. The topic shifts to forgiveness, and Catherine reads from a chapter of Midnight Water. Catherine, welcome to The Psychedologist. Thank you. As we are remembering all those years ago when you first came to the farm with me and my family, feels like an eternity or two. Indeed, we sat in the sunshine room, as I recall. Yeah. (laughs) And now this moment finds us on opposite coasts for the moment, but still kind of neighbors in our residences, neighboring states. Yeah, New England. (laughs) The The colonial colonial revolutionary uh, holder space of the future. I guess. I mean, I always thought of it somehow that way, like the refuge, like this is where everyone's going to come when climate collapses. But with the wildfires in Canada, I was like, even New England isn't safe. No. No, nowhere safe. But we have a lot of trees here still, which is a pretty good sign. Yeah. Yeah, that is good. Hmm. Well, let's dive right in. Um, Would you share about what your relationship to consciousness was as a child, as the tiny being? Hmm. Well, thankfully, I have, over the last 10 years, removed many of the obstacles to me getting closer to that awareness. Uh, A few times, I have had direct memories of my consciousness as a child. And the very first memory I have, I guess whether or not people believe this, is actually being born And I remember being completely encompassed by love. And it actually took a while to get back to that memory and remember that it was um, fundamental, that it was there first. It was primary. It wasn't something I learned later. It wasn't something I sought out. It was part of my reality, my total reality in that moment. And that many of the things that I thought characterized my consciousness were added on to that later. So what was added on later? Um, For me, a lot of my consciousness became not so much in my body, but in my head. So very intellectual, very thought-based, verbal memory-based, and unfortunately, progressively more stressed out and negative. (laughs) So in a way, I feel like uh, my future adult life looks a lot like getting back in touch with that primary consciousness that I have also glimpsed in other ways. 
um, but I feel kind of lucky to have remembered that it didn't get completely um, buried. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And as a recently published author of a psychedelic memoir, Midnight Water, um, do you think the psychedelics bring us to that place of, you know, that the starting point, love, like the, the, the base truth of, of all that is? I think they can, um, at least for me, except for my one experience that was kind of an accident with 5-MeO-DMT way back before it became so popular. Um, for me, most of the territory required still quite a lot of work. And I think that speaks to how much had gotten layered on top of my first experience of all-encompassing love. So it's good and bad news. Like even someone like me who had to dig quite deep to get there still could get there with the right medicine, with the right dose, with the right set and setting, with the right um, kind of meditation and therapy and somatic work to, you know, complement the psychedelic work. The good news is if yours isn't so buried, maybe, you know, psychedelics are an easy portal to, to get back there. Um, I think, uh, the other good news is that because I learned, I had to learn all of the hard work parts at the same time, I now feel less reliant on psychedelics to give me the access. It's like, I kind of had to learn the access myself and now I know it's always there. You know, maybe the door isn't all the way open all the time, but I can walk through it when I want to. Um, so for that, I'm very grateful and kind of happy that psychedelics weren't easier for me. <laughs> mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I'm thinking about, you know, the portal idea, like going to another place or <clears throat> being transported. And at the same time, thinking about that, like, maybe it's not a transportation, but actually a removal that for me, at least, psychedelics can temporarily uh, clear clear out some of the guarding, some of the um, the protective walls and structures, and you know, and especially intellectualizing and being in that secondary consciousness. Um, but then that's the thing when the medicine wears off, it's almost like some parts, some structures of my mind that were forcibly swept off, come back into place. And there can be a rebound to that, like, whoa. And I don't know if, I don't know if I would have gotten better at um, reaching that place in a sober state if I had just only kind of snow plowed um, the resistance out of the way. Right. You know, it's interesting. I think you were one of the people who first opened my mind up to the possibility that lower doses could also be very um, healing. And in a way, um, my trajectory has been one of um, the most intense possible experiences first. And then over time, learning to be more gentle and kind and, you know, softer um, going in and out of those spaces. And in a way, and now I don't know if you can do it the other way around, like maybe those original experiences helped kind of blast the door open, you know, so it wouldn't shut again. But for me now, it feels much more of um, a kind of a natural process, like breathing, like inhale, outhale. It's like I go into the space, I come out. It's no longer like psychedelics are over here and regular life is over here they've kind of gotten closer together rather than, you know, I'm just, it's not like I'm getting better at, you know, flying around the world. It's more like I can now walk to that place. Mm. Like I don't have to, I don't have to do this scary thing. Like for me, flying in a plane is scary. I hate it, you know? So if I can walk somewhere, it's much more preferable. So now in the metaphor, it's like before I was shooting myself off in a rocket ship to get where I thought I needed to go. And now I'm like, I'm just walking down the street. Like how lovely. <laughs> can see a lot more when you're walking I find yeah it's I'm 
surprised to hear that I was one of the first people to introduce that idea to you because I feel like for the last few years, like you are the person that comes to mind when I think about like, have you thought about smaller doses or maybe not tripping at all? Well, certainly let's, so let me reframe, reframe that. So I think I had gotten really familiar and comfortable either with sobriety or with high doses. And I was still compartmentalizing those. I was like, oh, you're either sober or you're really, you know, high. And so I think you were one of the people who suggested that like, there might be something to microdoses. There might be something to mini doses. Like there were um, ideas that I had because of my own training at Hopkins, which is high dose, my own experiences, which were very intense, that I had kind of dismissed microdoses as like, oh, that's so silly. And in a way, and I now it's like I can laugh at myself for being dismissive because it's like, oh, like, the, I mean, the mushrooms are laughing with me, right? They're like, this is so nice. Like, we don't have to do it this really intense way anymore. We can do it in a much more friendly way. Um, so, yeah, that was in particular the suggestion that you made that helped me bridge that gap from like sober to very, you know, very tripped out. <laughs> well I love the book I love your writing as I just told you before we started recording I think it, you have such an immersive voice um, and I think that it's being really well received I mean just people seem to love it is that like how is it for everyone to be reading your story um, I would say it's been 90% amazing and 10% like terrifying, you know, it's a, it's a bit of, it's like 10%, I wouldn't even say a nightmare. It's just, there are moments and they're getting less and less where suddenly a lot of old emotions around like shame, embarrassment, self-consciousness, uh, do people like me, you know, these kind of things that we were taught when we were pretty young and either in our families or in school, like wanting to be accepted. And so if someone really likes the book, it's like, they love me. They accept me. It's like, well, no, don't take that personally. Just see that it's um, accept the appreciation, but not the, um, the change in your own value. And equally so, if I don't hear from a colleague about having received a gift copy of my book, I'm like, how dare they? You know, they must really not like me. And it's like, no, they're probably just busy or they've got other stuff going on. So I'm kind of riding those waves and... It was an elder um, teacher who was the one who said to me, don't take any of it personally. And I thought he just meant the negative parts, but he also, I think, meant the positive too. Like, this is something that you've offered to the world, and it's actually helping you get less attached to your own story by not taking people's responses personally. And so in a way, the, the less I've done that, the more I can appreciate how cool it is that people are reading a story that actually is a lived experience. It was my life, but it's not my life anymore. And I haven't disconnected from Catherine of the first 40 years, but I could see that she's now not me. Like she exists in her own space now and she gets to impact the world, but I get to live my life, um, which itself is pretty trippy, right? It's like this idea of like being a certain person and then very kindly and compassionately, but completely letting that person die and then being reborn into whatever's coming next, which is super exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exciting is one way to put it. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're ushering in, you're laboring um, to bring forth a new, a new season there. What's, I don't know, any, anything that, is there anything alive in you now to share about this, Catherine? Uh, she certainly feels uh, unburdened. I would say that's a very apt descriptor because for the first four decades of my life, I felt like I was carrying something very, very heavy that I couldn't speak about, I couldn't share, I couldn't even tell my family um, I couldn't talk to my professional colleagues about, you know, aspects of myself. And that became this very heavy um, 
heavy thing, heavy kind of like um, center of gravity in my body. And it took a while, you know, I mean, I guess not that long, you know, 10 years isn't, is kind of a blink of an eye when you're talking about a lifetime of work, but realizing the burden, realizing how I had carried it, feeling like I could never be free of it, then eventually slowly learning with the right helpers and friends and therapists and psychedelic guides, like slowly, slowly, slowly getting to the point where I could um, release parts of it, you know, not all at once. Um, thinking that I had put the whole burden down and then realizing that I had still tucked away little bits and packets, you know, in parts of my mind, parts of my body, and now really feeling like nothing has been left out of Midnight Water. It's all there and it's just dispersing through the world. And like, what an amazing release that is. So like every person who reads it, whether or not they, I mean, I kind of give this informed consent in the beginning. I say like, now you get to carry this with me, but I no longer see it as a burden because each person is only carrying like a microscopic amount of it. And how amazing that is to do as a community for individuals. Like, hey, I'll carry like a microscopic bit of the part that's tormenting you. Like that, I can do that because it's not tormenting me, it's actually helping me. Mm. Um, so the process of rebirthing myself out of that feels lovely because the weight is gone. I'm having these images in my mind's eye of you holding all this water you're <laughs> right, you know, and then dispersing. Wow. Yeah. And it has water. like little droplets or like mist. I remember the, uh, so the character who I renamed Patrick in the early part of the book, he always taught me that um, there were actually, is it five elements? And mist is the one that combines all of them together. And it's considered a very like magical element because it's not just water or air or you know it's and so in a way I kind of imagine this mist water becoming something that is you know actually magical rather than something that weighs you down or um, needs to move in a physical way it's like mist just can kind of like float <laughs> yeah wow hmm. yes and witnessing mist is like an opportunity to witness air, which is so often invisible. Like I think like wind is a way to see air, like see the wind move through the trees or um, smoke. I like to watch smoke because that's that's like earth. That's right. That's like earth, fire and air, I suppose. So you get to see the air in the smoke. Hmm. <laughs> Another thing about the burdens, um, earlier when we were speaking about psychedelics kind of like clearing the path or taking you through the portal um and yet sometimes it, it can just be like a temporary uh <laughs> annexing of the burdens so to speak until they come back um yeah when the medicine wears off so is there anything that you can speak to about releasing burden as opposed to like sequestering it or right yeah so one of the um i think one of the turning points for me both in my journey to understand how i wanted to live my life or how i could live my life and also the turning points in the book is when i kind of stopped trying to banish or exile or um destroy the parts of myself or the memories, the parts of my consciousness that were tormenting me. Like I had really created this battle within myself. Even up to a few years ago, that was the way I characterized my lived experience was it was a battle internally, externally. And about two thirds of the way through the book, when I had basically tried it every possible way to defeat the monster in whatever form it emerged in my life. And I had to accept that I had failed. I couldn't defeat it. And I didn't understand how to live with a monster that couldn't be defeated. And that was when kind of I, um, I would say MDMA invited me back into a relationship 
um, that I was being stubborn about. And I feel like MDMA kind of said to me, like, there might be another way. Like, can we just try this? You know, like we've you've tried so many things, but like you haven't tried it my way. And I, you know, I feel like a lot of these medicines have a character, have a personality, they have an intention. And um, I feel very lucky that MDMA stepped in when like everything else in my life felt like they were, everything else was being pulled away. And, um, you know, that's kind of when things shifted from this idea of like, I need to get rid of the thing that's harming me to like, I need to learn how to be with the thing that's harming me. Befriend it, which is not a new idea. It's, you know, like Buddhism explores this. A lot of traditions explore the idea of befriending the enemy. But then something really miraculous happened that I still don't understand. But like the befriending actually allowed the thing to be released. So it's not like the thing stuck around and said, oh, now we're friends. Now I'm going to like, you know, hang out with you all the time. It actually went away, you know? And again, the circumstances in my life were such that literally one of the people causing the most harm in my life died. So I suspect some people might say like, well, you know, no wonder it worked because the thing is gone. But as you know, ancestors don't just leave when they die. <laughs> they, they can, can hang around. Present. <laughs> exactly. So um, the healing work actually helped to release me and this person in my life, I believe. Um, and it continued after he died. So... Um, you know, that's that's where I kind of want people to appreciate the miracle of letting go of um, the one way of trying to, like, heal yourself, which often pits you against the problem and shifting to this idea of, like, maybe the problem isn't out there as an adversary, but it's like a relationship that needs to be fully acknowledged and accepted in order for it to kind of go on about its, you know, about on its way. <laughs> Makes me think of Anne Shulgin's advice to, if you encounter a monster in a journey, try to look out from behind the monster's eyes. Yeah, and I, you know, and again, um, I feel like I must have known Anne said that, and I'd heard her say it. I learned from Bill Richards the same kind of um suggestion when I was training at Hopkins. But it was one of those little like, I talk about breadcrumbs in the book, like those little psychedelic breadcrumbs where you you pick them up and then you totally forget about them and then they they come back out in, a, in an experience. And I think in a way, potentially Anne, Anne's spirit, her intention and my teachers were also collaborating with MDMA to help me actually experience what they had been teaching me all those years ago. Because I remember when Bill would say that in prep sessions, people are like, what do you mean like a monster? Like, and they would like imagine all these like fantasy creatures, like an actual living monster. And even I too was so naive that I was like, oh, he must mean like when you have a bad dream or like there's a an actual, mo like a, a dragon or a bear or a wolf or like um, a serpent or like something that's actually, you know, fantasy. I didn't, understand that a monster could be uh, this almost invisible, ever-present aspect of your own mind. And I think that's what MDMA helped me to see eventually was like, it wasn't like I'm actually looking for a monster. The monster is itself the thing that I can't acknowledge. So of course it's hidden. It's like, it doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have a form. Well, and that process continues, right? You know, I think maybe most of us are dealing with what feels like an um, an unbeatable adversary in our in our own experience. And then once the big one is out of the way, then you find like smaller ones. And you're like, oh, I, I just keep doing the same process with these new things that I discover about myself in relationship that I've tried to just kind of tuck away or like hide or not talk about or feel embarrassed about. It's like, oh, okay, now all the little monsters get to come out and like, <laughs> you know, befriend, befriend Catherine and hang out for a bit <laughs> before they go on their way. <laughs> and they really, they can be such sweet little friends. 
right? Like sometimes the befriending does make it go away or I would, I would more so to myself, I think it's just like change so fundamentally that just the nature of the relationship is totally different. Um, it's not one of um, a power struggle, but more one of like a power with. And I mean, from a internal family systems perspective, when we when a part gets unburdened of what it's carrying, you know, the shame or the guilt or um, uh, abandonment, that gets unburdened and then it frees up all of the, you know, child, the qualities of that developmental stage, like creativity and spontaneity and excitement, like that also becomes liberated and is able oh, to- Oh, I love that. Be, yeah. No, that really resonates. And um, I forget if I ever told you, but it's worth kind of retelling at this point because there was a time um, in Bermuda where I was writing the book. About halfway through writing the first draft of the book, I reached an impasse where I was, I felt equally drawn to writing the whole truth as I had experienced it, come what may, or censoring the book in certain ways so that I felt like, well, I'm still telling the truth, but I'm protecting the worst parts of the truth from being known more widely. And this, at that point, I was doing somatic experiencing work with an exceptional woman, and we would do these Zoom sessions that were very powerful for me. And during one of the sessions, I encountered a part of myself that was a little girl climbing a tree and she was wearing a yellow dress. She had a name, her name was Sally. And she had been, you know, she actually had been the most lost in the conflict between protecting and the pain. And in a way, these two parts of myself that I thought, okay, I just need to resolve this conflict were hiding all these other parts of me that didn't even get to have a say in the conflict or didn't care about it. I mean, she was just climbing a tree. She was just like, come on, you know, like I, I don't care about what happened to you and I don't want to protect you. I just want to climb this tree. <laughs> so um, I feel like having resolved the conflict between these two very powerful parts of myself, the protector and the, you know, the harmed or pain, pain, you know, burdened person allows these other, you know, aspects to come to come out now. And the amount of energy I have now and wanting to be in nature and swim and play and be in my body is like, you know, it's like, I think Sally's happy. You know, Sally's like, you you did it. Like, now we get to play again. <laughs> <laughs> win, win, win. Would you say that forgiveness is a theme in the book? Yes, it's a major theme and it's one that I didn't believe I knew how to do for most of the book and I still struggle with in my life. Um, there's actually a point, and I hope that the reader shares the, the incredulity when a friend suggests that I might be able to forgive the most difficult person in my life, my dad. And I was like, I don't know anything about forgiveness and that's not even what this is about. This is about me and my life and moving on and and that invitation came shortly before a number of um, other life events that, you know, catapulted me into this MDMA experience. And so in a way, MDMA was also suggesting that forgiveness was possible, but people along the way had suggested it at a time when I couldn't, I wasn't interested, I didn't care, I wanted to blame, I wanted to judge, I wanted to be angry. And and then the shift that happened, I consider it to be a miracle because I still don't know how it happened. I, I still don't understand how forgiveness happens. I just know that it's possible. And so, um, you know, people have asked me like, oh, is it easier to forgive people now? I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I know it's possible. <laughs> and I'm willing to accept that some um, experiences of forgiveness just take a long time. And you can't force it. You can't just say certain words. You can't just will yourself to feel something toward a person. But when it happens, I mean, like, what a relief. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's uh, it's a struggle for most of the beginning of the book. And I think a lot of people will relate to the struggle. And what happens at the last third of the book, I don't want to diminish any of the feelings people are having where they resonated with the Catherine who was pissed off, blaming, judging, unwilling to give an inch because I still like, I, I very much understand that and feel it still. So, you know, it's no wonder that forgiveness is kind of a fraught area. I'm especially when I think people can, people can't hold their own discomfort around someone else's, uh, the violations someone else has gone through or something. And so they'll like impose forgiveness as an idea on another person, but just to make themselves feel better. Like, right. Like, please forgive me. Yeah. Yeah. Forgive me. Or even just like, you know, you should forgive the person that harmed you or whatever. It's like that, you know, if I'm, if I'm having a judgment of someone else that they should really forgive somebody, um, I think it's just a reflection of my own difficulty holding the pain of witnessing like this harm that's happened. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to, this might be a good time to read that section of the book that we were talking about because there is like a point where someone is suggesting something and I'm just like not hearing it at all, but then kind of changing my mind. <laughs> yeah, please. Okay. So, um, this is from, is it chapter eight? I believe it's chapter eight. It's called Immunity. And um, this, I'm going to leave out the paragraph that describes the context of all of the shit that was happening at that time because uh, I want people to kind of experience the trajectory of it and really feel the devastation of being kind of at the, at the bottom most point of um of like the path before there's a turning point but basically um i had lost many many things i had lost family members uh jobs colleagues friends um my own mental health and it was from that um that ground zero that kind of bottom point that um a revelation occurred. And so that's kind of where this picks up. Then one night I awoke, not to a demon or a heart attack or a sick child or a phone call with terrible news about one of my family members, but to a lovely, sweet lullaby. I laughed because it was so obvious. M. D-M-A. The cosmic joke got funnier and funnier the more I let this mantra weave its wave into my heart and bones. MDMA had been my original medicine. The medicine that broke my heart open and helped me feel my whole body for the first time. The medicine that gave me the courage to dance in a crowd and walk through graveyards alone in the dark. The medicine that showed me how easy it was to love, myself included. This was all back in college, and the effects were only temporary. I had only tried a full dose once since then at Burning Man, and the darkness that followed was enough to scare me off for good. I had convinced myself that MDMA therapy was now something for other people. You know, those people, with unresolved complex PTSD. But I was one of those people. I had complex PTSD. I needed this medicine. I was trying so hard to be the therapist, but what I really needed was that therapy. The punchline was the best part because I remembered that I already had access to an amazing supply of high quality MDMA. When my dad lost his speech and had to undergo brain surgery, and I thought maybe he was about to die, I had asked a friend to give me enough for my dad and brother and me to have one or two sessions together. This was going to be my Christmas present to them. But then my dad got better and I chickened out after the Bermuda trip and just stuffed it all away in the closet. 
I walked into my altar room and gingerly took out the MDMA, kind of embarrassed that I had kept a deity imprisoned in a closet for months. I carefully placed the capsules on the altar, 80 milligrams for the first dose and 40 milligrams for the booster dose, just like the protocol says. I opened up my well-worn copy of Be Here Now, the illustrated enlightenment guide written by Ram Dass back in the 60s that I think I actually took from the Hopkins session room before I quit. And the words that stared back at me were like reading the words on my own tombstone. I and the Father are one. A shiver went through my whole body. I hated those words. No, we are not one. I'm not like that monster. God the Father, my Father, no. I immediately started to bargain my way out of it. Maybe I shouldn't take the MDMA after all. It's bound to make me even more depressed afterward. Maybe I'll wait until my son is older and not nursing anymore. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But in the same way that I knew my sister was going to die, and I had no choice but to be there with her, I knew that this MDMA ceremony had already happened, was happening, and that I had no choice but to take the plunge. I knew in that moment that this was the beginning of the end, the final chapter, when I would finally be able to forgive my dad. And not just forgive him as something outside of me, or someone who had done some monstrous things that we could finally forget about, but forgive him in totality. Forgive him by melding with him, by fully understanding him, by finally accepting all the ways we were the same. Forgive him by coming face to face with the monster that was in him and also in me. No more hiding. When it finally came time for the ceremony, I was terrified. I sent my daughter to my mom's house for the night and managed to pump enough milk so that John, my husband, could feed and take care of our son. My friend Eileen had been working with a talented musician in preparation for a journey they were taking to a cave later that summer. She had been using his songs to seed really beautiful, luscious playlists to support her female friends in their shamanic journeys. What we had learned in sharing these playlists was that having someone in the room was too anxiety-producing for some women, but having the music plus virtual support from afar was just perfect. She sent me the latest version of the playlist, Mother Magic, and it was the night of the new moon. By early evening, everything was ready, and yet I kept coming up with excuses. I texted a friend who was also a mother of young children and knew a lot about psychedelic medicines. I asked her about the half-life of MDMA and whether I should cancel the session because I didn't have enough breast milk stored to feed my son a bottle the next day. And she basically told me everything that was going to be fine, to trust the way everything was lining up to support me in this amazing, courageous act. I called another friend who was also a psychedelic researcher and tried to cryptically explain that I was going what I was going to do without mentioning drugs on the phone. And it didn't really matter what she said, just hearing her voice put me at ease. Even though I was facing the abyss alone, I knew I was supported by all of these amazing psychedelic women in exile, what I like to refer to as the mothership. Once my son was asleep around 8 p.m., I took the first capsule. I had never done psychedelics in front of my own altar before in a room I had designed specifically for spiritual practice. It felt like a christening. I laid down on the bed and turned on the music, expecting the gorgeous melodies to simply carry me away. But the first song was wrong. It was creepy. It sounded like the rattle of a snake and reminded me of the snake that had slithered into the cave to show me that tormented little girl all those years ago and the serpent energy that had manifested in the mushroom ceremony before my daughter was conceived. I almost turned it off, but I kept repeating my mantra, I and the Father are one. Soon I was sick to my stomach and ran downstairs to the bathroom to purge. It only got worse. Every song was just wrong, wrong, wrong. 
There were lyrics about mothers and fathers, and I felt like I was being taunted. Ha, look at your childhood, your trauma. It's never going away. You can't even enjoy MDMA anymore. I felt so gross, so ashamed, but I had nowhere to hide. I wanted to bail, but I still took the booster dose. As the physiological effects of the MDMA got stronger, I was able to forget the music and focus inward. I started replaying a conversation I'd had with my therapist when I got back from the trip to Bermuda. She had shared with me this very sweet children's book about a soul who wanted to travel to Earth so that she could experience forgiveness. And one of the other souls had agreed to go with her. I remembered the companion saying something like, I can't let you go alone. I can't let someone hurt you. But because I love you, I will go with you, and I will be the one to hurt you. If you remember who I am, and remember how much I love you, then you will be able to forgive me. But if you forget, then you will hate me, and we will both be lost. I was so annoyed that she gave me that stupid book, because I was just not ready to see my dad that way. And yet, a deep part of me knew the book was right. In that therapy session, I was telling my therapist that I just wasn't ready to talk to my dad about what happened when I was a kid, and I had accepted that I wasn't going to be able to forgive him before he died. And she replied, instead of deciding what you will or won't forgive, maybe you could consider what your terms are. What would it take for you to be able to forgive your dad? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's it's one of those memories that is so, like, I can go back into it. And, and what transpired after that was so psychedelic. And I think the coolest thing about MDMA is that you can be in that kind of therapy space with yourself, remembering conversations, very lucid, rational, like using your intellect, and then experience that wave of going into this really deep cosmic space. And I, I've always loved how, you, you know, we used to call it rolling because MDMA like rolls up and down. And when you're in a space where you're really lucid, you can think, you can make notes, you can call a friend even, mm -hmm. uh, talk to the person in the room, and then you can dive deep. And I've always loved that about that medicine. Um, so yeah, I just... It's like one of my best friends. I feel like so lucky that it found me in this lifetime. I just love the the parable or the story of the angel and experiencing forgiveness, like, and this thought that, I, and I, I guess like the Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home kind of thing comes up as well. Like, and when I forgive, I'm also forgiving myself somehow. It's a muscle and, and it requires a flexibility as well. It's like there's a whole conditioning to, to being able to get there. And it's like, can, can one forgive if you haven't actually appreciated the depth of the suffering and the loss, right? It's like that seems part of the process of forgiveness is, is actually going through the fire. And it even <clears throat> I'm thinking about the, this is just a lot of, a, a lot of perhaps disjointed thoughts, but just in response, um, that so often when we're hurt, we're alone and there isn't like, that's what trauma is, right? That's what Gabor Mate says. Trauma isn't what happened to you. It's, it's the impact. And it's like generally not having some co-regulation in that, in that hard place. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, and it's interesting too, because I, very early on in the book, I mentioned that on a meditation retreat before my sister got sick and went into the hospital, I had forgiven my dad, but it was such a surface level um, agreement, you know, and this idea of what are your terms? It's like the terms change when you understand what really happened. So if you think that what happened was you kind of had a bit of a messed up childhood and your dad was going through some stuff and you were a bit neglected, but you're fine now, that kind of forgiveness is at the level that you were able to accept the memories. 
And what happened after my sister got sick and died was I had greater access to the full depth of the memories. And suddenly I, the terms changed because how do you forgive, how do you forgive something that happened that is that intense, that is that um, impactful over so many years? And what I would say about psychedelics and maybe even more so the meditation was that it helped me see that there was also a, an immense amount of suffering on my dad's side. Never validated by him, never acknowledged or voiced by him, but a lot of what I was feeling in my body was the reflection of that suffering that he was holding, his burden. And so in a way, the the Ramdas quote, I and the Father are one, forced me to see that he was also carrying a burden and that by not forgiving him, I was wishing upon him the thing that was tormenting me. Oof. And if I would never want to carry that burden myself, why would I wish it for someone else? And so that was like that just miraculous turning point where suddenly I saw that the pain that I didn't want for myself, I would never wish on someone else and that there was actually a way to release it. Because <laughs> it's one thing to have compassion for someone else, but then what do you do? And in this case, thank God, we were so interconnected in the, um, in the relationship that something that I released would also release him. And I think once he died, he was finally able to release things that also helped me. But it was beyond his capacity when he was, you know, in his body. And that's also, I think, something that I've come to accept is sometimes we expect people to have the capacity to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just beyond some people's capacity. You know, there are many things that are beyond my capacity. And I would wish other people not judge me for that or hate me for that. Um, so, of course, it's a delicate balance. We don't want to just, you know, give people a free, you know, what do you call it in Monopoly where you just like don't pass go. You just keep, you know, it's like we don't want to give people a free pass. But the idea that anyone gets a free pass is also an illusion because people are suffering. It's like no one is just sli like sliding through this life harming other people and not experiencing any harm themselves. Indeed. I agree with that. So what do you think? Do you think that MDMA is a forgiveness medicine? I mean, it would be hard to say no. Um, <laughs> you know, my work with MDMA has been around shame. It was actually for the first time in my life, I realized how much shame I feel. And it was because I felt it while I was on MDMA and I was able to feel that I was feeling it because I couldn't feel that that's what that was. It was just something I felt like all the time, pretty much. And then when I was on MDMA, I was like, this is so uncomfortable. What is this? Oh my God, I feel ashamed. Oh my God, this is how I always feel. <laughs> well, that's true. You're also one of the first people that has asked me about shame and you know how it relates to my journey. And in a way, I feel like the forgiveness like passing the threshold of forgiveness was what was necessary for me to then grapple with shame. But the sh it's like, I, I don't know if I could have done it the other way around. So like now I'm like, okay, like there's a softer space to now befriend this thing that is truly mine. It's not related to someone else. I mean, of course it always is, but it's like, it's really mine. This is like my thing to work on. Yeah, and be in relationship with the parts of yourself that still hold that mm -hmm. <laughs> oh Catherine I miss our talks we could just <laughs> I could talk to you all day <laughs> I know and I sometimes think about people listening they're like why are these ladies so happy about this stuff this is all like the hardest thing I could imagine and we're like isn't it fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah I never want to stop talking about this <laughs> but it is it's liberating um Gosh, I appreciate you so much. I know we're coming to the end of our container here. Do you have a consciousness hack to share? Well, I've put almost all of the consciousness hacks I know of in my book. Um, they are not recommendations. They're just information. <laughs> so um, my current consciousness hack is, um, I would say immersing myself in nature almost always 
works to hijack my consciousness into a more open, expanded, um, accepting state. So if I'm feeling like stuck in a problem or a way of thinking or I'm having anxiety, just take a walk in the woods and without a purpose, but then suddenly it's like, oh, that really shifted things or like jump in a body of water. So I would say my best hack is just immersion in nature. It almost always works. I have it. There's actually a quote. Um, I forget who said it. They said there is never a problem they couldn't walk their way out of. But instead of walking away from the problem, you just kind of like take that pause and then you can kind of see it from a new vantage point. Um, thank you so, so, so much. Really appreciate your time today. And oh, where can people find a copy of the book or more about you? Well, my website is the easiest place, katherinemclean.org. Uh, the book is available wherever people buy books. And what I have requested is that if you believe in um, in the intention of this book, which is for healing and for helping people gain more education and awareness around psychedelics, um, ask your local library to order a copy. So then it's there and it's freely available for other people in your community. Ask your local bookstore to order a few copies so that uh, more people learn about it. And if you buy a copy on Amazon, um, leave a review again so that more people can kind of learn about this um, this parallel story that's happening in so many people's lives alongside the mainstream pharmaceutical story that is dominating uh, news and media. And finally, the audiobook, I actually recorded the whole thing. It was awesome. I loved it. It was very hard. And it's coming out probably in the next month. So I'm super excited about that. And you'll see it on Audible or wherever you tend to uh, buy audiobooks. So my only suggestion is don't listen while driving because it is intended to be consciousness altering. It is. It and is. <laughs> I want people to be safe. This is I'm a big fan of safety, even though I don't always practice it in my own life. <laughs> Well, congratulations, and thank you for letting us hold some of this water with you. Thank you so much, Leah. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com.